Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited today to be joined by Dr. Mylene Duong, who is the Senior Director of Research at the Constructive Dialogue Institute. She's also doing a lot of really interesting work around mental health, in particular for children, really interesting research background. We're going to get into all that in a bit. Before we do any of that, I want to welcome Mylene to the show. Mylene, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the terminology, the Constructive Dialogue Institute. We all try to have constructive dialogues as often as possible, but it does take some skills. We're going to get into that a little bit, but before we do that, we like to get to know our guests. Can you catch us up on your origin story, how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, for sure. So I am actually trained as a clinical psychologist, and I really took an interest in kind of the public health model of mental health. So trying to get mental health services and psychology principles out to as many people as possible and trying to embed it into our culture. Mm. So kind of away from this one-on-one clinical practice, not that that's not important, it's just not enough. So then I got started really developing behavioral programs for kids in schools and the adults who support them. So worked a lot in social emotional learning, helped the Committee for Children published a second step for adults program when I was there, which is a social emotional learning program for teachers, and then found myself drawn to the Constructive Dialogue Institute just because I was, like everybody else, just worried about the state of political polarization in our country. Yeah, and especially its impact on our youth, because we're modeling that behavior for them. And then frequently... I've heard it described as a culture of outrage and fear. Social media is a real challenge for our youth today. I know that's something that's become a focus for you, teens, adolescents, Mm -hmm. their mental health, their mental well-being. Can you talk about what that focus is and what it's been like focusing on that group who's really going through significant challenges these days? Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, I'm always a skeptic of these big generational mm-hmm. claims because I feel like I'm just like a crotchety old person saying, oh, the kids these days. Yeah. <laughs> and every generation has that. And also, I grew up as a millennial and, you know, millennials were just called anything and everything in the media. We're entitled. We want a yeah. trophy for everything, you know. But I think that enough data is actually accumulated about this generation that we can make a couple of conclusions. First of all, I want to say there's a lot of great things about this generation, right? They are volunteering more than ever. Yeah. They really seem to value diversity and empathy, and they're engaging in less risky behavior, mm-hmm. including sexual behavior. But the bad news is that they tend to struggle with mental health disorders more often. So in 2021, actually, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a, an advisory calling youth mental health a public health crisis. And there's also a lot of speculation now about this Generation C, so Mm. Generation COVID, Mm. you know, and about the lasting impact of the pandemic and what that has to do with learning loss and mental health and some of the economic consequences that we're still going through right now. Yeah. But the truth is that that mental health, this is not great news, mental health has actually been worsening for about a decade or so. Yeah. And so like in 2019, let me give you just a statistic. In 2019, one in three high school students reported feelings of sadness or hopelessness persistently. And that was true for one out of every two girls. Mm. 
This is pre-pandemic. This is pre-pandemic. And then you take that number from 2009, just 10 years before, what we see is that we've seen a 40% increase in that statistic over the last 10 years. Yeah. And of course, the pandemic has just accelerated some of these trends. So, for example, people have looked at suicide attempts, emergency hospital visits for suicide attempts. And you take a period, time period in early 2019, and then you compare that to what it was in early 2021, and you find that it was 50% higher for adolescent girls in the same time period. So there is a lot going on that is really impacting the mental health of our youth today. Yeah. And then there is also research that can help us understand the interventions that produce some positive effects or at least ameliorate some of the negative stuff that's going on these days. You've written some stuff, you published some articles, you've also talked about the importance of evidence-based work Mm -hmm. and implementations that actually do move the needle. Can you frame up for us how the research has been going and how you can start to identify things that actually do make an impact? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. So a lot of that is what I do now at the Constructive Dialogue Institute or CDI. So as the senior director of research, what I do is I take the psychological science and I say, here are the things that people are finding to work. Now, let's find a way to package that so that it's appealing, it's intuitive, it's understandable to people, and let's find a way to get it out there. And then I evaluate those interventions. So what that means usually is running a randomized control trial. For example, we recently did a randomized control trial of a program called Perspectives. And Perspectives is an online learning program that is intended to help students learn about basic neuroscience of group differences and how it is that they can learn to talk to each other despite their differences. Mm. We did a randomized control trial that in 775 college students. Yeah. You want me to tell you about it? Please. I'm on the edge of my seat. I've talked a lot about science communication on the show. This is almost like science communication about more mental health and behavioral stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it as like science translation, yes. right? Like taking taking science and putting it into practice. Right. And also lots of times I think people don't associate mental and behavioral health with harder scientific outcomes. Right. But when right. you talk about things like suicide rates, the other, the other thing I just, I started reading the new book out by Gallup, The Blind Spot. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's yeah. basically the global unhappiness epidemic, but they're talking about, I think it's deaths of despair, which is like suicides, liver disease due to alcohol and like opiate stuff. But it's like, there are harder metrics and a lot of it does wind up being more like survey based. Yeah. But even then you got to get at how people are feeling. But anyway, yeah, please. I hear there were 775. That's right. It's involved in in a recent study of yours. Yeah. Yeah. So what we did is we did a randomized control trial. You know, this is like the methodology that like pharmaceutical companies use to test drugs. And so what you do is you take a group of people and you randomly assign them to have to receive a treatment, whatever that is, and then have to no treatment or a control group. Right. And so that's what we did. We took 775 college students. We randomized half of them to take our program perspectives. And then the other ones we just surveyed and they didn't do any kind of, they didn't, they certainly didn't do our program. So what Perspectives is, it's an online learning program. It's, it's 
eight 30-minute modules. So it's actually relatively short. Yeah. The aim is really to help students work across their differences so that they can solve problems together. Yeah. So we use psychology-based principles and we teach them about things like how confirmation bias works, how it is that we've evolved to have the kind of in-group, out-group tendencies that yeah. we have today, and then how that is actually impacting our culture at large. Like we were talking about just a culture of outrage and contempt where yeah. my group is better than your group. We draw these kind of fault lines across really every difference that we can find in our society. So we help to raise awareness about this. And then we say, well, what can we do about it? And so we've come up with this term, constructive dialogue, right? Yeah. It is just what it sounds like. So it is talking to each other over differences in a way that builds, in a way that is constructive rather than destructive, which is often what we see in society today. So anyway, all yeah. of that is to say, we had them do this program. And thank goodness we found positive effect. Yes, yes. <laughs> Always a nail biter when you're a researcher. So what we found is that 73% of the students improved in what's called affective polarization. So you can think about this as like outgroup antipathy. Mm. So mm. it is a contempt and a distrust for people who are different from you. Yeah. And then we, we found that 51% of them improved in what's called intellectual humility. Mm. And that is just recognizing that you don't know everything. And because you don't know everything, you're actually open to what other people have to say. Yeah. And we also found that 59% of them were less likely to use negative attacks while in conflict with another person. Mm. So these are all really promising signs that we're, we're changing the way that people think. We're also changing the way that they handle the differences. Yeah. It's also great to hear that some of these things can be measured and that we're focusing in a little more on the social emotional stuff as something that you can quantify a little bit. Because I think there is a tendency to say, oh, social emotional, it's a little squishy. You know, you can't yeah. really do science about it, but you can, you know, use the same techniques that we're using to approve new drugs from pharmaceutical companies. You can do that around new types of behavioral interventions. And then what I'm hearing from you here too, is that there's some benefit to just being exposed to difference, but by virtue of being exposed to folks who are different than yourself, you're forced to kind of expand your thinking in ways that folks who are growing up more in their pockets and not actually mm -hmm. being exposed to difference are more likely to see those outgroups more negatively and to perhaps have less of that intellectual humility that you're describing. I think what you hit on, Mike, is actually, if I could do one thing, if I could change one thing in the world, it would be to restructure our social interactions so that we're routinely talking with people who are different from us. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way I mean, that is really the crux of the problem right there, mm -hmm. because this is well known that we tend to like people who are similar to us in all kinds of visible and invisible ways. Yeah. We gravitate towards them. We tend to interact with them more. And now we live with them. We work with them. We marry them. Yeah. And we only talk to them online. So now we've, we're all in our, our echo chambers and it makes it so much easier to say, my group is better we're better than them, smarter than them. We're kinder than them. Yeah. Yeah. So the more 
we can get folks exposed to difference, the better the outcomes. And then there's also structured ways that you're trying to build that intellectual humility and that kindness, for lack of a better word, for those who are less like you, however you might think of yourself. And then you mentioned also, is there neuroscience? I'm a big fan of neuroscience. So is there neuroscience involved in this as well? Yeah. Yeah. There's, so we use a lot of neuroscience principles in our work. So for example, one of the things that we talk about is what's called dual processing theory, right? Mm -hmm. This is like slow thinking, fast thinking stuff. Yep. And it is this idea that your brain is operating on kind of two systems. One is super fast, it's automatic, it's and you use it for 95% of what you do every day. It, it goes without thinking. And when you're brushing your teeth, you're not yeah. thinking, oh, I'm moving my toothbrush this way. And then there's the other part of your brain that is more slow and deliberate. And we tend to think that that's us, the slow and deliberate part. That's what makes us who we are. Right. But in fact, is it makes up a tiny percent of our decision-making every day. Yeah. And... Jonathan Haidt, who is one of the co-founders of the Constructive Dialogue Institute, has this metaphor that the brain is like a human rider sitting on top of a very large elephant. And the human rider is your control thinking, that's your deliberative thinking. Hmm. And the, the large elephant is your automatic thinking. Yeah. And you might think that the human is in control of that interaction, but that elephant is telling you where to go. And right. actually, what the human is really good at is coming up with the rationalization mm. for why the elephant is heading that way to begin with. Yeah, that's amazing stuff. And what I'm getting from you here, which is an important insight as well, is that some of these things are teachable. We can make people better. Many of our listeners are teachers. They're people who care about the future of learning, You know, educators, folks in learning and development roles, all those different things. Assuming these things are teachable, we're going to have to get better at teaching people to be better humans and to engage with others and get, seek out difference, be empathetic, be kind. Can you talk about the educational connection to what you do and how, in some ways, you're trying to figure out techniques that might work in classrooms to build these types of skills? Yeah, for sure. Our programming is really developed for teachers and for students, right? And the idea is that we need to prepare the next generation to be dealing with differences. And because of the political climate that we find ourselves in today, people really try to stay away from anything that is even remotely controversial. Mm -hmm. right? We hear horror stories all the time in the news media about teachers getting fired for saying something offensive or right. people getting canceled for saying something offensive. And what we want to do is we want to give people the skills that they need to have those conversations constructively. Yeah. Because if you think about it, many of our problems require that we talk to the other people. We are living in a world where our biggest societal problems need collaboration in mm. order to be solved. And if we don't give students the practice to do this, where else are they going to learn it? Right. And so we think that th these are the kind of skills that need to be systematically cultivated in schools. And is that through the regular curriculum and there's a way in which you can layer in the SEL teaching or does SEL require its own 
separate sessions. And, you know, also there's yeah. been a bit of a backlash against SEL, which we can get into maybe a bit afterwards. But do you have any recommendations on how you integrate social emotional learning into maybe like a K-12 education? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the short answer to a question is both and, right? You need both kind of the separate direct instruction of these skills and it needs to be layered and embedded into the curriculum. And teachers find all kinds of creative ways to do that. I've seen people use math to teach about growth mindset, for example. Right. So that is when it's most effective. It's when it's taught explicitly and when kids are given plenty of opportunities to practice throughout their day. Yeah. And I guess also it's real world relevant. Like it actually is applied to scenarios that either are generated by the kids themselves yeah. or have some face value around, okay, that scenario might actually happen as opposed to as much as I love the trolley problem, it's a little <laughs> abstract, you know, but you turn it into the light rail problem or the subway problem. I don't know where we go with that, but, but also there's been a bit of a backlash against SEL recently, which I, I, as someone who's lived this for many years and is continuing to spread the good word about what's happening. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on a little bit of the pushback? It's been surprising to me, but I did think it's a trend worth noting. Yeah, I've been really interested in that pushback. I've been following it for some time. And it's really, it's an interesting intersection of the bodies of work that I've done, right? In terms of social emotional learning and then political polarization, because a lot of that pushback is coming from the right, from conservatives. And I think what it comes down to is that it's a symptom of the lack of trust and it reflects the fear that people have of the other side. Yeah. And a lot of that pushback is, for those listeners who, who aren't aware, the worry is that parents are worried, primarily it's parents that are worried that SEL is like a Trojan horse for critical race theory, that they're bringing in teachings about systemic racism and about oppression, but not calling it a critical race theory, putting it into a social emotional learning curriculum. And a lot of these parents, you know, they've probably never even looked at the SEL curriculum and they're making a lot of assumptions about what is in it. And they're really consuming media from conflict entrepreneurs that are using this device in order to get media attention. And I think the other thing that I want to say, though, is to the educators and the program developers and the SEL advocates that are out there, it's that we have this theory of change right in our head that if I just explain this to our conservative parents, they'll know, they'll understand what SEL is. I'll explain what CRT is and what it is not, and they'll understand. And I think they'll get you some place with some people, but it's not going to be enough. And so I'm going to tell you the story. I have three beautiful nieces, one, three, and five. And the five-year-old is in pre-K now. So they are actually going through an SEL curriculum. I mean, they're using an SEL curriculum in their class. It happens to be one that was developed by the company that I worked for. Anyway, yeah. so they have these parent letters that go home. And I happened to be over one day. I don't know what I was doing there. But my sister-in-law, who happens to be conservative, is reading one of these parent letters. And she says, oh, Ellie is learning in her class that all feelings are okay. 
So that means that it's okay to throw a tantrum when you don't get what you want. And it was sort of a light bulb moment for me because on the one hand, the idea that all feelings are okay is something that is so ingrained in my training as a clinical psychologist that I don't question it anymore. And at the same time, you can see how she might have misinterpreted that all feelings are okay means all behaviors are okay. Right. And I imagine she's not the only one that misinterprets it that way. So I think it's incumbent upon us as program developers and as advocates to make sure that all voices are heard. And I think we started to do a better job of that by paying attention to the visible differences, right? Like race and gender and class and disability. Yeah. But there's also there's also kind of differences in our worldviews. These days, map onto our differences in political affiliation. Mm. And I think the point I want to make is that we have to make sure that we're considering these differences too when we're developing these programs. Yeah. Yeah. Being genuinely inclusive means including ideas and opinions that you don't necessarily agree with. And at your point, you might not even think that the alternative, even the science, whether science is okay or not, you know, like at some level you may question, why do I have to explain why science is important? But at the same time, if you can't explain it, if you can't understand why someone might be questioning it, you're losing that opportunity to reach someone. And you're also losing that opportunity to maybe expand your your own understanding. And as, as a parent of a three-year-old who's soon to be four, he's also in pre-K, the SEL curriculum was amazing for me as a parent. And I, I will say that there are some of us out there who are really embracing it. And when a kid is three or four years old, I want to know whether he's sharing. I don't really care where he is on a literacy scale because it's not even on that scale yet. But part of why he's in 3K was just to to begin to socialize him, to have him engage with others, especially in light of the pandemic. It's been hard to kind of do that. Any thoughts on the skills that are needed for educators? Because it does seem like the constructive dialogue and some of the emerging SEL skills and competencies are perhaps different than the way we've thought about the core competencies that are needed for teachers, at least in the past. There was more of a sense of mastery of subject matter and the ability to lecture from the front of the room. That does seem to be evolving. As an expert, I'd love to hear a little more of your perspective on this. Yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think, what competencies do teachers need these days? I mean, the thing is, like, teaching has become such a complicated job, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because in addition to shepherding children's social emotional learning and their development and making sure that they're, you know, learning their three R's and making sure that you are acting as a first responder. Right. It is also becoming an an increasingly public job. Right. Everybody wants to know what it is you're doing. And you have all these stakeholders in the way that I think teachers didn't have 15, 20 years ago. And I think, you know, just the electronic communication has just made it that much easier Mm -hmm. to get information out there. So now everybody wants to know what it is you're doing in your classroom. Right. And so we hear a lot of stories and there's a lot of recent data to show that teachers are getting, well, I don't want to say harassed, but I think the polls actually do show a a significant portion of them are getting harassed about things like, are you teaching CRT? And just an increasing number of legislative moves 
that have tried to restrict what it is that teachers can and can't teach in their classroom right. at the state level. And so I think that, you know, it's not fair. I don't think it's fair that we're putting teachers through this. And at the same time, it is a problem that they're going to have to learn how to deal with and that they're going to need support in dealing with. Yeah. It's how to have these kind of cross-political, cross-party conversations and how to handle questions about whether you're teaching CRT in your classroom, because it's going to be increasingly a, a concern. Right. Yeah. It's almost like resilience and some mental health tooling on their own side, just to avoid burnout, to continue to show up, to continue to engage. And then similarly, folks who are managing schools, working in teacher-facing oh, capacities, absolutely. like yeah. leveraging the right empathy and social emotional skills to support the whole teacher, not just the whole student. I love that. As we're getting closer to conclusion, any other trends that you're tracking? I always love to get my guests broader perspective in the world around you. You mentioned some of the polarization. We were talking about the role social media is playing, but anything out there in the world more broadly that's capturing your imagination that you think our listeners should be paying attention to? Yeah. You know, I've been reading and thinking a lot about conflict, right? And so I'm actually reading Amanda Ripley's High Conflict right now. It's a book where she takes these stories of people who are really embroiled in conflict. And it's this idea, it's related to SEL, it's related to political polarization, because these kind of dynamics and what we've learned about how conflict manifests, I think can explain a lot of what's going on in our society today, where we're no longer able to talk to each other, where we are digging in our heels rather than collaborating with each other. And really, we're being reinforced by our in-group for doing so. And I think that this is, we're going to have to figure this out. We're going to need to figure this out, how to handle conflict more constructively mm -hmm. if we are to move forward as a society together. Yeah. Yeah. And then how about in terms of the work that you're doing, where do you see trends in evidence-based research on SEL interventions, anything at a macro level, micro level, interesting research you've encountered? What's the new hotness in SEL research? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think the new hotness in SEL research is how SEL developers and teachers are going to be able to talk to parents about SEL-like concepts. Yeah. And what about that? The parent engagement challenges. And I guess at the end of the day, these all come back to empathy and understanding why parents feel the way they do while still yeah. providing structure, direction, and you know, learning opportunities where if they need to evolve their thinking, what's the best way to engage and persuade and yeah. get them moving in the right direction? Yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with building a foundational level of trust and communication to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think that can prevent a lot of these misunderstandings. But I think the one piece of advice I would have for somebody who's trying to defend SEL or defend their curriculum is first, just slow down and listen, ask questions. And I think that there's a couple reasons why I say this. One is that it makes people less defensive if you receive them with curiosity and openness and you mm -hmm. just say, tell me what it is you're worried about, like what's at the root of this mm -hmm. and really try to understand what is like the kernel of truth in what they're saying, even if you disagree with 90% of it. Yeah. 
And trying to find that kernel of truth, it's just going to help you be able to communicate. You want to get away from, I want you to walk away with this having changed your mind, right? right like I right. want to get away from this kind of convincing mindset. Words to live by, whether you're engaging with parents or just engaging in life. As we're wrapping up here, Mylene, first off, if folks want to learn more about the work that you're doing, we'll include links on the show page for the episode. But if folks want to track any of the stuff that we've been talking about, is there anywhere you recommend that they go? Yeah. I mean, we are very easy to find. We are at constructivedialogue.org. Awesome. And then as we're concluding, I always like to give guests an opportunity to close with some takeaways. And what are some closing thoughts, ways to kind of reinforce any of the key concepts you've been outlining today? Yeah. I mean, I think that what I would just like to say is the world is broken. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but we do have a lot of problems, right? We do have a lot of big societal problems that are very challenging to solve. And the only way we're going to be able to solve them is to work across party lines. It is no longer an option to stay within our own bubble because we need a bigger co coalition than that in order to solve these problems. And so really the SEL skills and the way of dealing with polarization is really about these constructive dialogue techniques, about listening, about trying to understand, about letting go of winning, about acknowledging the other points of view and about finding common ground. And I think that is the way forward for us. Awesome. Makes sense for my three-year-old. Makes sense for all of us. There's a lot to be learned on the social emotional front. I didn't sing Whitney Houston today, which is showing my discretion. Dr. Mylene <laughs> Duong, it was amazing having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us on Trending in Ed. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Awesome. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure you write a review. Tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.